0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's word. This is week two of a series entitled At Long Last. And uh, in the first message in the series, Pastor Jack and Trish were here in Bethlehem speaking and Barry and Delaina Sarard were at Mukunji and they were sharing with us the at-long-last message entitled, Awakenings Are Essential. The message was delivered by a married couple, of course, at each campus, because of the emphasis on the at-long-last yearning of Adam for a mate, for a helper. That's when God created Eve. But the message also encourages us that as we wait upon God for all of the not-yets, the not-yets in our lives, we have something that we can learn from that not yet. So let me talk now about the next, at long last example from the scriptures. So today's title from this message is From Longing to Laughter, based on Psalm 126. I had a number of other titles that I wanted to give to this message, which I ran by the staff, and um, they didn't appreciate it, but anyway. I, I could have called it From Banishment to Bliss or from dejection to delight, or from exile to ecstasy, or from grief to glee, or from longing to laughter, that's the one we ended up using, from mourning to mirth, from restraint to rapture, from weeping to wonder, from yearning to returning. Okay? All of those go with this psalm that we're about to read. Now on its own, this psalm, which we'll get to eventually, tells a part of the story of a long wait, but we need some background. You need some background to this text to appreciate very much what this long wait, what this at long last was all about. A number of the Hebrew Bible stories, that is the Old Testament stories, are set in the context of Israel while they were in exile. For example, Daniel, Ezekiel, a little bit of Jeremiah, they were written while the Jews were in exile in Babylon. Theologians believe that Psalm 126 is actually based on that exile from Jerusalem into Babylon, which was around 590 BC, let's say about 600 years before Christ. Um, And The king of Babylon at that time was Nebuchadnezzar II. So he exiled all of the Jews out of Jerusalem. But then the exile ended almost miraculously with the conquest of Babylon by a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus the Great came in around 538 BC. That's like about 50 years after the exile. So they'd been exiled for 50 years. And then Cyrus then puts an end to their exile and sends them back home. So this background helps us to understand more of this at long last. So why did God allow the exile of his people? You may ask, as I asked. Well, as we read from Second uh, Kings 21, uh, if you go further in 2 Kings to chapter 24, and chapter 25. We find the reason for the exile. It says this in chapter 24, "'Surely this happened to Judah at the Lord's command "'to remove them from his presence "'because of the sins of Manasseh "'and all that he had done. "'Their enemies overran them. "'Eventually the defensive walls "'of the city of Jerusalem were breached. "'Solomon's temple was destroyed. The holy vessels were all plundered. And most all of the people, except for the very poor, were then taken captive to Babylon. In other words, God was kind of saying, you break the law, you go to jail. Pretty much is what he said to them, and that's what happened. 50 years in exile. So think about it. An entire generation grew up in Babylon who had never been to Jerusalem the younger generation who never participated in the temple sacrifices or the rituals. They never saw the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. And during those 50 years, they still tried to remember Judah and Jerusalem. They sang songs that caused them to long for the home that they called Zion. Psalm 30, 137 captures this. Some of you know this. "By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows of the midst of it, and there are those who carried us away captive, asking of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, "Sing us, one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing? Yahweh's song in a foreign land. Oh, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Oh, if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. They yearned to return. And I I know a little bit of what it is to have been exiled, Um, My fraternity, where I lived with 38 other brothers for some three years of my college experience, that fraternity at Lehigh University has now been shut down as a fraternity. The members of that house are now in exile. We know where that exile feels. We've lost the ability to practice our traditions, our corporate memory, as a fraternity of brothers, all of the reunions at the lodge, no more. They're gone. And we used to use those as pilgrimages as a sort, where we would gather together and we'd tell old stories. It's all over now. That's what happens when a university gets woke about gender-specific living units. They're shutting down the fraternities. But to me, I feel like one of those who's been exiled, from the university. Well, even Isaiah, before the exile happened, he prophesied a day when they would return. And it says in Isaiah 51, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. With everlasting joy it will be upon their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning will flee away. Now this passage of scripture, as some of you know, has a plenary meaning to it. That is, it has like a double impact to this prophetic word. It may refer to something of that day, but some believe that God was speaking through Isaiah to speak to our day of those who were returning to a different Zion. But now, assuming that Psalm 126 is about a return from exile after having been in Babylon. The Bible has even more details about that return. Did you know that? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which by the way is called Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah respectively, they restored the temple and then they repaired the walls of Jerusalem. They also restored the religious practices according to the Mosaic law. By the way, you know mosaic doesn't mean decorative. Mosaic means according to Moses. (laughs) Just want to be clear. And they were facing resistances and, and obstacles, but there was much joyful shouting expressed at the completion of the temple, and then when the walls were finally repaired. So in this literary genre that we're about to read here, Psalm 126, in most of your Bibles, if you don't have electronic Bibles, it should say at the top, right above verse 1, a song of a sense as in ascending. And the reason that's in there, that's actually part of the original Hebrew. That's not just a notation by the guys who print the Bibles. In fact, that is part of the original Hebrew. It's called a song of ascents or some Bibles, you might even have it translated from the Hebrew as Song of Degrees. It's part of a sub-collection of 15 psalms. Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134. It's like a a uh, sub-grouping of psalms in the Bible. It was likely sung by the Israelite uh, pilgrims en route to the great feasts that happened at Jerusalem. And since Jerusalem is situated on an elevation, one seems to ascend as you approach the city. So they would stop at various locations in their ascent to Jerusalem, and they would begin to read these psalms as they went from psalm to psalm and making their progression along the way, arriving at their destination. But all of these psalms is a song. It is sung. Sometimes it actually is written as Hebrew poetry. We're going to give some examples of that. And like a poem, we need to interpret the meaning. And I have to tell you, I'm terrible at poetry. My family says that all the time. I read, I says, I don't understand this, because you don't understand poetry. I clearly don't. And then, of course, we're reading something that was translated from Hebrew to English, so I'm really lost when it's Hebrew poetry. But if you dig into this psalm, as we will well in a little while, we'll be able to break apart some of the poetry that's in there, too. So to start with, we have to define some terminology for this particular psalm. So the word Zion. Boy, I remember this, singing this in song, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Well, what is Zion? I never knew what it was. I just kept singing it and thought, I I know it's something good. I just don't know what it is. Well, actually, Zion is a word referred to by the Jews as the city of Jerusalem or to, to Mount Zion, you ever hear Mount Zion referred to? That's the elevation where the city was physically built. But also sometimes Zion refers to the people of God who lived there, okay? So you have to be careful of context as to what they mean when they use the word Zion. So in this case here, we'll find out that it actually is referring to the peoples who lived in Jerusalem. The other thing to note as we go into this uh, psalm and we'll read this, I hope you would realize that when you see capital L-O-R-D, it's not wanting to mention the name of God. So they use the word Lord in place of it. But it's actually the four letter Hebrew word that we say Yahweh. It's his name. That's very important. We're gonna get into the significance of that just in a little bit. But I want you to note that all throughout this and how that is used here. So, open your Bibles or your s- smart tablets, smartphones to Psalm 126, and let's just pray a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word because it's given to us to build us up, to encourage us, to correct us, to exhort us. To live right. And now, God, we look to your word. Open it up today, Lord, these ancient, ancient words, and let it lift up our hearts today, O God. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to read through it once, and then I'm going to do commentary on it thereafter. But I have to insert the words wherever possible that were actually in the original Hebrew. Okay, so I will do that for you. We'll read the whole psalm. When Yahweh brought back those of the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was filled with shouts of joy. Then they said amongst the Gentiles, the nations, the Goyim. Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Yahweh, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who continually goes to and fro forth weeping bearing seed for sowing will doubtless come again with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. Well let me break down this psalm if I can. I'm going to put it into three parts today. The first part is verses 1 to 3. And I'm calling this part here a praise the middle part there, verse four, I'm calling it a prayer. And verses five and six, I think are all part of a promise. So we'll get to each one. So it's a praise because verse one to three, um, important part there is that it refers to God in this Psalm. It never uses the word Elohim in Hebrew, which means God. It never uses the word Adonai, which is another way of saying Lord but it exclusively uses the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Only Yahweh. This is significant. This is a people who came out of a land where there were all kinds of other gods with all kinds of other names that they went by. So this this psalm writer, this song writer, made it perfectly clear that they're referring to the God of Israel, Yahweh. I want to be very clear about that. There's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. And he's saying that here. So that's his name here. And by the way, what was King Manasseh's sin that caused the exile? King Manasseh began to worship other gods. He caused the peoples to worship other gods. That's what their sin was that put them into exile in the first place. So this Psalm writer wants to make sure that it's perfectly clear, there's no other God like our God. And then he starts out and he says this, we were like those who dreamed. This unnamed author of this psalm, he wrote it from the perspective of one of the Jews who came back from exile in Babylon. More than just a praise, it's a personal, corporate testimony of praise, based on the events that changed not only their lives, but also the course of history for the Jewish people, for God's people. And for more than 50 years, the inhabitants, of Jerusalem, including the surrounding areas, Judah, they were forced away from their home. And they were then, while in exile, waiting for the return to home, to Zion. Zion is home for the Jews. Zion means the land that Yahweh gave to them. Zion means the place where Yahweh has placed his name. Zion is where most of their ancestors were buried. Zion was the city of David. It's the location of Solomon's magnificent temple where they practiced the liturgical covenantal rites handed down to them by the law of Moses, though those practices fell into neglect before the exile. It was their pilgrimage city. It's where all the other people spoke their language. So great was their yearning for home. They could only dream about it. Remember, in 50 years, more than a generation had passed. Stories were told, songs were sung to remind the next generation of what it was like in Zion. But at long last, some of us get to go home And so my first principle is this one. There is a longing so strong, so sustained, that it becomes such stuff as dreams are made of. I'm borrowing from William Shakespeare, of course, on that one too. That is, the longing becomes almost too good to be true. It's like a dream that recurs but it's never truly satisfied. And yet there were prophetic voices, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah before them, that spoke of a day when this dream of a return to home would become a reality. And when there is a strong, sustained waiting for, a longing for, the reality is so spectacular as to almost be unbelievable. And when this happened for them, they were saying, is this a dream? Oh, if it be a dream, let me sleep on. Do not wake me yet. Or as we say, pinch me. I think I must be dreaming. And some of these are the reasons why this at long last is so great and why we were like dreamers. Verse two. Verse two is written, what is often seen in the Hebrew writings. It's a Hebrew couplet. That is, it says the same thing twice, using different words. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, then was our tongue filled with singing, some of your translations saying, but the, the Hebrew word there is not that. The Hebrew word there is a word pronounced something like "rena," which means shouts of joy or joyful shouting. It's tra- consistently translated in New American Standard, for example. It's more than just singing for joy. It's something else that comes out. I'm trying to think of other ways to express it. And I think the only time I've ever seen this is, in some ethnicities, when there's a celebration, rather than just saying, yay, yay, something like that. Like at an Orthodox wedding, there's something else. The women all start going, la, 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 I'm like, what is that? It's almost like scary, you know? It's a joyful, outward expression. Beyond words is what's going on. That's kind of like the Hebraic expression we're talking about here. In other words, we've never heard <laughs> the, the Jews sing from that time. And I tell you, it's going to be very different than we're expecting today of what singing, joyful singing sounds like. It is very loud, very joyful. So this translation of joyful shouting is so much closer because it also expresses this deep energy that all those days, those dreary days have now demonstrated to them what God can do. And it's added to the height of their pleasure. And it comes out in this expression of joyful shouting. I'm not a sports fan, you guys know that. But I have to admit, I would like us sometimes together here in church, when we're excited like we should be about God. I wish it would be like a football game in here. It ought to be, right? How great is our God? There's no one greater than the God of Israel, right? And he's our God. Yay, God! How about it, right? Yay, God! Okay? That's the kind of joyful expression we're talking about that really should be our portion as well. And the longer the wait, the greater the at long last celebration. That flood of joyous emotions that we tried to remember for years finally comes out. And not only was the expression so important, somebody wrote a psalm about it. You see, for us to read it and be encouraged by it. See, that's how strong was their song. Going on to verse three. Still part of the praise. And then they said among the goyim, as the Hebrews would say, that means the nations. That means all those who are not part of us, them. And some translations will say heathen, okay? Those who aren't believing in our God, okay? Yahweh, they use that word. The heathen called him Yahweh. Yahweh has done great things for them. And then all of a sudden you go, yeah, uh, Yahweh has done great things for us, for which we are glad. In other words, the influence of the Jews upon their Babylonian captors was such that those who followed other gods had to acknowledge the God of the Jews. Yahweh had done great things for them. That's why the Babylonians asked the Jews, sing us the songs of Zion. Did the Jews in captivity, even as captives, cause the Babylonians to be jealous of their God? There apparently was yet a testimony to God in their way they lived their lives, even in captivity. Despite how wayward and backslidden they had become, there was still something in their zeal for God that caused the Babylonians to be jealous. What an incredible blessing When we as believers can cause those around us who don't know God to start talking about how good our God is. How much did this blessing add to their at long last experience? That even the heathen said, God has done great things. Yahweh has done great things for them. And then of course, the awakening of saying, yeah, the Lord has done great things for this, and we are glad. It's a complete expression of the lost 50 years of life outside of Zion. Yes, God has done great things for us, and we're truly glad about it. But I want to notice something else that I picked up about this psalm. And when you look carefully at this psalm, observing what is the cause and what is the effect of the events in this poem, in this song written here. For example, it starts at verse one, when Yahweh, when Yahweh brought back or reversed our captivity, when Yahweh did this, then was our mouth filled with laughter. Then was our tongue filled with joyful shouting. Then they said among the goyim, Yahweh has done great things for them. Which brings out this concept that I found here. The when of God is the source of the then for the faithful. So in the grand scheme of Israel's history, uh, thank you for that word, Mike, I appreciate it so much, that God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign in the midst of our yearnings, times of waiting. He's the one who determines the timing the outcome, the realization of our longings. He is the one who decides the when. So two, when we pray during our times of yearning, and oh, I hope when you yearn, I hope when you are longing for something, you never stop praying. We pray and we continue to pray through it all. We have to lay down before God our then. Our then, then things that we had to delay, things we had to suspend, things we had to put off, things we had to put on hold. Come on guys, we know about those things, don't we? The future we had hoped for, the wedding we had hoped we could have. All of those thens we lay before God. And when our, once our then arrives, hopefully we can declare, oh, Lord, the depths, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how unfathomable are his ways. When We will realize it was so much better, God, when you caused it to happen, Lord. Your timing, I relinquish all authority to God as my sovereign. In a story similar to Jack and Trish, Oh, I didn't get to talk this over with my wife, so I'm at risk here. Lisa and I, in our courtship, had two years of separation. And that is, we lived 350 miles away from one another. We communicated only by phone calls, and we visited one another only six times over those two years. And yet, we were engaged to be married. And we felt like those years would take forever ever. Oh, but you see the when of God was our then. So when we look back, we enumerated all the benefits we received from that long wait. Further, it made our marriage union so much more significant to us. We always heard about couples who said, oh, the first year is really rough. And we're going on our first year of marriage and second year of marriage, third year. Honey, when are we going to hit that rough spot? She goes, I don't know. But this is still like a dream to me. Isn't it amazing? We gained wisdom and knowledge beyond our years and we waited and waited and pined and I tried to study and learn everything about marriage because I can only dream of it. I couldn't even be with Lisa. We spent a small fortune on telephone calls back in the day. The waiting was agony, but how great was our at long last. Oh, the wisdom of God. Oh, how great is God's wisdom in that. Sorry, moving on to verse four. Verse four is the prayer. Saying, turn again or bring back again, O Yahweh our captivity as the streams in the Negev or in the South, depending on which translation you read. Now we need a little bit of knowledge of geography, meteorology and agriculture of the Middle East to get the main point of this phrase. Again, I've I've seen this for years and never thought, what did that mean? It's really important to do this. This is a prayer for the perfection or the completion of the deliverance from captivity of the Jews. May those of us, they're saying, who are still captive, there are some who yet remain in Babylon. May they be brought into this for which we have waited. Now, perhaps the younger Jews had become enculturated with the Babylonians. Maybe they didn't hunger for Zion as much. They didn't remember Zion. They were born and raised in Babylon. But now saying, God, bring them in as well, God. And then it says, as the streams in the south, or Negev. And the Negev is in the far south region of Israel. It's a desert-like region. It gets less than eight inches of rain a year. That is dry. Hardly sustaining enough farming to even live on in that region. But that region comes back to life after the streams that flow during the rainy season. It's a rush, a torrent of waters. The streams fill up. The lands become green again. Life returns in the South when that happens. So this prayer includes a level of faith in believing what was already demonstrated, that God you will do it again. You brought us, bring back the rest of them too, Lord. In the same manner, bring them to life. Those that yet remain in the captivity, Lord, complete it. Bring them back too, Lord, just like you do, Lord, when life comes back in the South, in those dry riverbeds that come back to life. Okay, moving on, Verse, verses five and six. Let me just say this. This is um, almost proverbial. It is almost like a proverb that's being spoken to us. And again, it's interesting because it's a form of Hebrew here where it actually says the same phrase twice, but embellishes it some more when it says it the second time. So verse six is actually a repeat or an expansion on verse five. And so many people have asked this question, are these verses literal or are they metaphorical? That's greatly debated. Some say these are actually prophetic, where they speak to our day. Some theologians believe that they actually were speaking of something, a difficulty that was being faced at that time by those who came back from the captivity and they attempted to farm the surrounding lands and the vineyards again, and they discovered how hard it was to begin to bring the lands back to life Again, Well, why would anyone be sowing in tears? I wanted that too. Why tears in sowing? Well, the land was so dry, remember, untended, unfertilized, unfurrowed lands for 50 years. So these, <clears throat> perhaps then, were sowing seeds though they were very sorrowful for what happened to the land. Perhaps they were sorrowful for the rebellion that would cause them to be going into exile. Maybe these tears were acknowledging, thank you, God, we're actually back in our land, planting on our own land again. Yahweh, you have been good to us. And if some of you know the story of Ezra, maybe this is a possibility. In the story of Ezra, when they came back, and rebuilt the temple. The younger crowd that came down to be there, they were shouting joyfully, thank you, God, we rebuilt your temple. But the older guys who were old enough to remember the original temple temple of Solomon, under the shouts of joy, there was weeping. Because they remembered, they remembered the temple when Solomon had built it with gold and stone and beauty was in it. And what they were seeing was just a shadow of that temple. And they were weeping at what had once been, even when they had returned from captivity. Well, now metaphorically though, this short Psalm, however we want to read it, ends with a promise that those who sow in tears will reap with joyful shouting. They'll bring the fruit of their labor with them as sheaves of grain. Now, those of us who live in our city boys, like I am, I don't know what a sheaf of grain is. But it's when you, in the fields, you would wrap, the way they do agriculture back in the time, you would wrap up all the, the big lengths of grain and put it into a sheaf. And you would gather that sheaf on your shoulder and take it in from the field, carrying. That's the harvest of your labor. That's what that is. That's the fruit of your labor, bringing their sheaves with them. Now, some of you have heard the song, bringing in the sheaves, right? Bringing in the sheaves. We will come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Well, that Baptist hymn is based on this verse. That's where it comes from. And it's to encourage, of course, that we be sowing seeds. That is, sharing the gospel. Sharing the good news about Jesus because someday that will produce a fruit. That's what that's all about. But one way or another, if you take that piece of that psalm and realize it's pointing to an exuberant joyful at long last when we take a harvest. So, closing the message now, We have to make the story of Psalm 126 our own story. That is, we can't limit this to just a literal history of Israel because then we'd look at it and say, oh, that's all well and good. What does that say to me though? What does that mean to me during my times of waiting? So how do we make sense of this? Um, Especially when it makes reference to something like the Babylonian exile. I'm not in exile. Um, maybe this is talking about the future. However, some of the the commentaries are emphatic about this. This is actually telling a story about your captivity that you were released from captivity of. Well, what captivity is that? That is, if those of you who have come to know the captivity of sin and have had your sins forgiven That's a captivity of sorts. It speaks of my story. As a teenager, I was a teen rebel. I played rock and roll. I did some dope, drank too much alcohol for a teenager. By the way, if you're a teenager, you probably shouldn't drink any alcohol. I want you to know that. But I experienced this growing emptiness in me until I saw this band, a rock and roll band, playing Jesus music. And I said, you know what? I wanna know what this is all about. I would journal about this. For a year, I was writing in a journal. What would it be like to be a Jesus freak? I had no idea what it was, but I was very much attracted to it. And so after about a year of wrestling, my, there was when I was invited by an ex-druggy friend of mine to a Bible study. And it was then that I learned that Jesus loved me and he wanted to forgive me for my messed up life. And it was then that I asked Jesus into my heart. And it was then I was overwhelmed with God's love for me. And in the words of the band Chicago, I have been waiting such a long time for today. There it is guys. and that was almost 50 50 years ago today, that God created the when in my life, and I was freed from my captivity. This song has tremendous relevance to me. We would sing this as a chorus, I won't sing it to you, but maybe I will, no, oh anyway. Um, But the whole point of this chorus was I didn't know it was the Scriptures I just love this song because it spoke of my release from captivity. I didn't know what the Negev was, or the streams in the south, but it sounded joyful for me. So it was a joyful song. It was a song of the redeemed for me. And then later on somebody says, yeah, Psalm 126, let's open up. I'm like, I already know this song. (laughs) I memorized this Psalm because I've sung it before. And that is my song of the redeemed. Well, perhaps you've heard my story and you realize you've been waiting, longing for something in your life too, something that you haven't quite found yet, but you'd really like to know who is this Jesus, even as I was longing to understand who is this Jesus, but you sense maybe God is calling you to a deeper relationship with him. Well, you can have a relationship by praying a simple prayer just like this. Dear Jesus, I need you in my life. I've been waiting so long to feel loved and forgiven. Please forgive me. I now turn away from all the wasted years of worthless acts. And now I'm turning to you Thank you that you died for me on the cross. That You paid my debts. Thank you that you offer me complete pardon and then the gift of your spirit. So I receive that right now. Please come into my life. I want a deeper relationship with you, Jesus. Make me new. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.